How are we doing today? Awesome. Hey, can we just give another huge hand for, uh, actually give God some praise really quick for Thomas and Katie. Thank you so much for being willing to obey and share your story. Um, I was telling them this backstage, but um, this is huge for their marriage, for them specifically, but it's an even bigger deal for our church to be able to hear stories of what God is doing. And as we're in this series of miracles, we're just going to keep repeating this over and over and over again. We serve a miracle-working God, do we not? Okay, and we're actually going to keep reminding you of this um, even after the series is over because we simply cannot, guys, hear me, we cannot afford to forget this. We cannot afford to forget this. And I love what Heather shared last week about how God really hasn't changed. In fact, not really hasn't changed. He hasn't changed. He did a lot of cool miracles when the Bible was written. Um, but I would argue that he's doing more miracles now than he ever has. For the simple fact, I'm a numbers guy, there are way more people on this broken planet today than there was back then. And so that means there's a lot more people that need him. There's a lot more people that need him. And as I was studying for this message, and I was familiar with Thomas and Katie's story already before today, um, I was immediately drawn to the story of Jacob and Esau because I saw some parallels between the two. We just heard a story about how a marriage was on the brink of divorce, like a phone call away from divorce. But God intervened and healed the marriage. And with Jacob and Esau, we have a story of two rival brothers, relationships severed for 20 years. But God intervened and healed that relationship. And so before we dive into that story, can we all just bow our heads and pray really quick? God, we are at capacity this morning in this place. And we know there are some empty seats. We know we could add a bunch more to the back but we are still at capacity this morning because your spirit has filled this place completely. And right now there are people in this room that need a miracle from you. And so we ask that you would replace any spirits of fear with a spirit of boldness. We ask that you would replace any spirits of doubt with the spirit of your truth. And we ask that you would cast out any spirit of hopelessness and replace it with the hope that can only come from you. In Jesus' name, everyone said, okay, Genesis 25. I've got a very short time to cover eight chapters of the Bible. <laughs> so I'm going to cover like the first seven of those eight in about four sentences. Um, okay, Genesis 25, starting in verse 22. This is actually before Jacob and Esau are born. Rebecca, is, their mother, is pregnant with them, and she has some questions of God, and God speaks a very powerful prophecy to her. Let's read this together. Sorry, you don't have to read it with me. That was a little bit unclear. Sorry. Um, <laughs> but the two children struggled with each other in her womb, so she went to ask the Lord about it. Why is this happening to me, she asked. And the Lord told her, the sons in your womb will become two nations. From the beginning, the two nations will be rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other, and your older son will serve your younger son. And when the time came to give birth, Rebekah discovered that she had, did indeed have twins. The first one was very red at birth and covered with thick hair like a fur coat, so they named him Esau. 
Then the other twin was born with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so they named him Jacob. Wow. That is crazy. Such a powerful prophecy given to the mother ahead of the birth of her twins. And I want to focus especially on the names because these names are very important. With Esau, it's pretty straightforward. He was, it says he was red and covered with thick hair like a fur coat, which makes him sound like not a human being. <laughs> but um, So they named him Esau, which is unfortunate. But like it, they named him Esau, and that basically just means red in Hebrew. And so it's like, okay, like not great, but it's not awful. And then with... But with <laughs> But with Jacob, it actually is way worse because his name means heel and not H-E-A-L, like heel, like the good kind of heel like we're going to talk about a lot in this series, but like H-E-E-L, like the heel of your foot. And if that's not bad enough, it's actually worse than that because um, the he came out of the womb grasping Esau's heel. And this phrase, grasping at the heel in that culture, was a figure of speech for an attempt to deceive. Jacob comes out of the womb, and he's, this is no, this is God's prophecy, okay? This is, Jacob is a baby. He doesn't know what he's doing, okay? He comes out of the womb, literally the picture of deception, and they name him that, and little did they know that he would definitely live up to that name. The story goes on for seven more chapters very quickly. Jacob is mama's favorite growing up. Esau is daddy's favorite growing up. And someone, I'm sure someone in this room knows how well favoritism works. Those of you that have kids, I'm sure you know how well favoritism works. It doesn't. Okay, Jacob deceives his brother and his father, steals the firstborn birthright and the blessing. And this, in this, like, in this culture, we, have to, we gloss over this. I think a lot of people, when they read it, they gloss over it. This was a big deal. This was like legally binding. So even though he was the second born, the fact that he had the birthright and the blessing means that he was legally entitled to a double portion of the inheritance and there was no backsies. Okay? Like, there was, there was no will. Like, you can't go to the lawyer and say, yeah, but, but I was the first born and dad wrote down in the will. No. No. It was too late. Esau finds out, he is very upset, and he intends to kill Jacob. So Jacob, no, let's keep score really quick. Jacob is sinning like crazy, deceiving everybody, but Esau also sins in response to that because he wants to kill his brother. And Jesus tells us in the New Testament that if you think, if you're angry at your brother in your mind, it's as if you've murdered him. Okay, so there's wrong on both sides here. Just like there was wrong on both sides with Thomas and Katie. Okay, two sinners. Two imperfect people. So God needs to find a way. God needs to make a way. Jacob runs away. He runs to his uncle Laban to live and work. And not long after he's there, his uncle Laban actually deceives him into marrying both of his daughters and not just the one that he wanted. And then Jacob kind of deceives Laban and ends up with the best of Laban's livestock. And Laban gets upset. And so Jacob is like, okay, I, I need to get out of here. So he decides to head back home. And face the facts after fighting a heart issue and really a name issue for 20 years. 
Now, there's no denying, if you read the story, you, can fi- you find out that he has a big family and lots of servants and lots of livestock. There's no doubt that God protected him. And there's no doubt that God was with him. And you could even argue he blessed him to some extent. But up to that point, Jacob's life was largely built on deceit. He had God's protection, and he had God's presence, but he did not have God's blessing. And there's a big difference. Everything is starting to come full circle now. And he heads back towards home, and he knows he's going to encounter Esau and get to Esau's territory. And we don't really know from the text what happens with Esau. We just only know Jacob's side. But for all Jacob knows, Esau still wants to kill him. He doesn't know after 20 years that maybe God has been stirring something in Esau's heart too. Because we know if we read the entire story that you can see some heart change in Jacob. It's not like he was a pathological liar up the entire time up to that point with no, with no heart whatsoever. So we know Jacob's heart is slowly, slowly being drawn to the heart of God. We don't really know what's going on with Esau, but for all Jacob knows, nothing's happened, and he still wants to kill him. And they both, both brothers, probably resent their parents to this day because the favoritism from the parents started driving the wedge between them in the first place. So this is, this is just a messy situation, you guys. And for anyone that thinks that time heals even some wounds, it, it doesn't, okay? It doesn't. It didn't hear. As Jacob approaches Esau's territory, he sends messengers ahead to Esau along with a gift of 580 animals. Camels, goats, sheep, and you name it. This is a huge gift. And it, someone estimated that if, if you take like today's livestock prices, over $650,000, okay, that is a gift. Give me the cash, not the animals, personally. <laughs> but <laughs> I can do a lot more with the cash than the animals. But, um, but listen to what Jacob says to himself. Genesis 32.20. This is so huge. Perhaps I may appease him with this gift, and afterwards when he sees me, he will accept me. How many know that money can pacify sometimes? How many know that money can appease sometimes? But money can never buy forgiveness and acceptance. And I, personally, this isn't in the text, but I want to give Jacob a little bit of credit here because I think some part of him was not trying to buy his brother off. He was trying to pay his brother back for what he stole from him. Okay? He stole a double portion of the inheritance, and I don't know how much that $650,000 goes towards the double portion, but I, it certainly, in Jacob's mind, was probably, he, he, I'm just trying to, I want to pay you back, Esau, for what I stole from you. The night before Jacob goes to finally meet Esau, he sends his whole family, all of his servants, all of his children, his wives, and the rest of his livestock. He was very wealthy. He sent a ton to Esau, but he had a lot left. He sends everything. Everything he holds dear, all of man's blessing, all of man's inheritance, he sends it all across the river the Jabbok River. Now, why would I choose to include that insignificant detail, seemingly insignificant detail, in the entire eight chapters? Because I'm learning out of time. And as I was studying, I read that verse, and I just felt like God told me, look, you, you got you to gotta look up what that word means. 
It's, a, it's just the name of a river, like Mississippi, Illinois. It probably just means that area is, you know, Javik. So what? He said, Phil, I need you to look it up. The root of that word Javik is a verb in the Hebrew language which means to empty. Don't tell me God's not in the details. Okay. You hear that a lot at this church, you're going to keep hearing it. Don't tell me God's not in the details. If the word is on that page, it's there for a reason. And sometimes you got to dig just a little bit past that first page. How interesting that Jacob empties himself of everything that he has on the banks of the river that means to empty. Come on. And it feels like he's doing this in preparation to meet Esau. He's by himself. And it feels like he's doing this in preparation to meet Esau, but he meets God first. Genesis 32, verse 24. It says, A man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. Pause really quick. Most scholars believe this man was Jesus himself. So if you don't mind, I'm going to read the rest of the passage inserting Jesus' name. Okay? It's my fault 100% if that's not entirely true but I feel like I'm a bit justified in doing so when we get to the end. So stick with me. Verse 25, when Jesus saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of its socket. Then Jesus said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? Jesus asked. He replied, Jacob. Your name will no longer be Jacob, Jesus told him. From now on, you will be called Israel because you have fought with God and with men and have won. And skip ahead to verse 30. It says, Jacob named the place Peniel, which means face of God. For he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. Once again, Jacob is reaching out. He's reaching out, trying to grab a blessing. But this time, it's a little bit different. He has finally realized the importance of God's blessing. He had God's protection the whole time, and he knew it. He had God's presence the whole time, and he knew it. But now he had a chance to get God's blessing too. He had lived his whole life with man's blessing, striving after man's blessing, stealing an inheritance, getting a double portion. And he realized that that wasn't enough. It didn't really matter. He needed God's blessing. And I love how Jesus responds. Heather said this last week too. Jesus, many times he responded with a question. Jesus responds with a question here. He says, what is your name? Now Jesus knew Jacob's name. He was giving Jacob an opportunity to remember what his name meant. Giving him an opportunity to remember that he had lived up to his name. And he was giving him an opportunity to acknowledge who he was before the one that created him. And Jacob says, you got me. I'm Jacob, the deceiver. And Jesus says, because you have acknowledged before me who you really are, you shall no longer be Jacob, the deceiver. You shall be called Israel because you have striven with me and with men and have won. You shall be called Israel, my chosen people. A new name. You have a new name now. You have a new identity now. You have a new purpose now. You have a new direction now. 
And for the fir- this is a huge moment in Jacob's life because for the first time, he could finally identify with and believe for himself the prophecy that he knew had been given to his grandfather Abraham and to his father Isaac and had been spoken to him at story time day after day after day as he was a child. But he, it wasn't his yet. It wasn't really his faith. It wasn't really his prophecy too. And for the first time, God tells him that this is who you are now. And for those of you that aren't totally familiar with the Middle East, there is a country to this day by the name of Israel named after this man, okay? Don't think for one second that the way you live your life, don't think for one second that the way you parent your children and the way that you love or don't love anyone you come into contact with can't have an impact throughout the course of history, because this man lived a very short life, and there's a country thousands of years later to this day that is the name of this man, Israel. Your life matters, and it, it can impact history. How will it impact history is the question. The next morning, Jacob goes to meet Esau at the start of Genesis 33. He's still afraid. He's bowing down to the ground as he approaches his brother. He's afraid of what's going to happen, but Esau runs to meet him and embraces it. Esau asks him about the large gift, and Jacob says, I sent these gifts to find favor in your sight. And Esau says, no, no, I, I have enough. And Jacob says, no, please, 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 you have to take this gift. And I love what he says in Genesis 33.10. This is the key, you guys. No, please, if, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. And you have accepted me, just like the night before. He actually called his brother Peniel in that moment, if you read other versions. Jacob saw the face of God the night before when he wrestled with Jesus, and he acknowledged who he was before the one that created him, and he gave him a new name. And then he meets his brother after 20 years of stolen blessing. And you have to, and I didn't cover this earlier, Esau had 400 men with him. All he had to do was say one word, and Jacob's entire family would be killed. Esau could take the entire gift with him and the rest of what Jacob had. Israel could have been erased from history, and Esau wouldn't have to lift a finger himself. That could have happened. But Esau runs to him and accepts him, not because of the extravagant gift, but because of who he was, he was saying, you're my brother, I love you, and I missed you. And isn't that how Jesus accepts us? Whether we have $650,000 to give him or not, or any other gift we think we can give him, doesn't Jesus come to you and say, you are my child. I love you, and I missed you. So I say to you, if the miracle you have been waiting for is a healed relationship, perhaps one of the key ingredients for that miracle is for you to be the face of God. If such a mindset can heal a relationship of two rival brothers, after 20 years, I would imagine it would go a long way to, heal, a long way to help you as well. And in all this, we have to remember that it was all part of God's plan the entire time. 
Do you remember the prophecy in the beginning, Genesis 25? Paul talks about this in Romans 11. He's speaking about Rebecca and about the twins, Jacob and Esau. It says, but before they were born, before Jacob and Esau had done anything good or bad, she, Rebecca, received a message from God. This message shows that God chooses people according to his own purposes. Now, this was all his plan, and I don't know why. I don't know all of the reasons why. But I'm pretty sure I know one was so that he could be glorified in the healing and the restoration because now we have two men who have large families who become two large nations that can share a story with every single one they meet about the miracle working God. So when we have the right perspective, you guys, that God is a miracle working God, the prognosis of whatever your situation is starts to shift, okay? Listen to me for a second. Stage one, caught it early, I'll probably be fine, is not just that. It's an opportunity. Stage four, terminal, I won't be fine, becomes an opportunity. Both are opportunities to glorify God. Both are opportunities to say, it is well with my soul, because the trial, the waiting, the miracle, none of that is about you. Heather said this last week. It's about God and accomplishing, and it's about God accomplishing his plan for your life and his plan for lives that you touch. Now, God is equally capable of healing both stage one and stage four. Neither takes more effort than the other. But we have a hard time acting that way. Because it's hard. It's hard. We're humans. You guys, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to come down here. It's hard. Stage four has a lot less hope than stage one. If you just look at the chart at the hospital. When we don't take the right perspective, it limits the prognosis to what's on the chart at the hospital. And raise your hand if you want to limit the prognosis to what's on paper. Does anybody want to limit the prognosis to what's on paper? Did you know, did you know that the devil wants to keep the prognosis on the paper, but God wants to prog- take that prognosis right off the paper and have it serve a purpose? Let me say, some, somebody didn't hear that. So the devil wants the prognosis to stay on the paper, but God wants to use the prognosis to serve a purpose. Okay? This is huge, you guys, and I'm, I'm almost done. Just stick with me a little bit. I have one more story, and then I'm done. In 1986, my Aunt Kathy was diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 32. By the time they caught it, it had spread to her lymph nodes, and the prognosis was not good. One to two years. And wouldn't you know it, her and her husband, Randy, my uncle, had already committed to two years on the mission field in New Guinea, and they had two children under the age of three, my cousin's. Nate and Rachel. My uncle was a gifted doctor, and he was there to uh, take care of, he was committed to take care of the other missionaries that were there as well as locals. And my, my aunt, Kathy, was a gifted counselor. And after aggressive treatment and surgery and aggressive treatment, she was weak, her hair was gone. They left for New Guinea anyway. And they would go on to stay for two and a half years, okay? Healing people through gifted medicine, okay? 
Aunt Kathy especially, helping to heal relationships through counseling. I don't. I didn't know her very well because, um, you know, as a as a child growing up, and I wasn't there obviously. But she was a powerhouse in New Guinea. I know that for a fact. At one point, they actually cast a demon out that had been tormenting one of the other missionary kids. And most importantly, most importantly, that was a miracle. All of it are miracles. Okay. Most importantly, she helped heal relationships with Jesus. She led people to Jesus. Short time later, they would actually go on to uh, do a short-term missions trip to India. By this time, the chemotherapy had completely eliminated her immune system. It was gone. (laughs) And if you know anything about India, it's really easy to get sick there. The entire team went. This big team of people went. Every single person got sick, except Aunt Kathy. That's a miracle, too. And I could go on and on and on and on and on about all the miracles that happened to her and her husband and and her kids and everyone they touched. There's miracles and miracles and miracles I could go on for hours. Because a lot happened in the 13 years that she battled cancer. Okay? She wasn't healed, though. The cancer did take her life after 13 years. But when the paper said one to two years, God said 13. And so I would say it's still a miracle because the ripple effect of those 13 years is still causing miracles today because generations in New Guinea and India know Jesus and will come to know Jesus because Aunt Kathy wasn't afraid to tell them. She didn't press pause in her life waiting for God to heal her. She decided to be the face of God, regardless of what happened to her. She brought healing to lost people, and God's purpose left the prognosis in the hospital where it belongs. Guys, his ways are not our ways. His plans are way higher than our plans. He sees bigger and wider things than we can ever see. He calls people according to his purposes, Romans 9. Jacob's paper said he was a deceiver. Aunt Kathy said one to two years. What does your paper say? Guys, many times what you reach for determines what you receive. So if we reach for a miracle working God, I will tell you what you will receive. You will receive evidence. Okay? You reach for a miracle working God and you receive evidence of miracles, you start to notice miracles all around you. And maybe it's not your miracle, but it starts to build your faith in that miracle working God. And then guess what happens? You put more faith in God, and then you start to receive more evidence of miracles, which produces more faith and more evidence and more faith and more evidence. And pretty soon you start to see so many miracles you can't keep up. And many of times they were there the whole time, you just didn't notice them, or you didn't acknowledge them as miracles. Okay? But you guys... There it is. Faith, evidence, evidence, faith. Okay. This is so huge. Uh, 
I just believe this lines up really well with John 21, 25. Jesus also did many other things. And if they were all written down, I suppose the whole world cannot contain the books that would be written. Let me tell you something. Your story, it's okay. You can clap. You're allowed to clap in church. It's okay. Let me tell you something. Your story is one of those books, and God has already written it. So here is the only thing you need to worry about. Reach out for the miracle-working God. Receive the evidence. Unleash your faith and obey. That's it. Reach out for the miracle-working God. Receive the evidence. Unleash your faith and obey. Would you stand on your feet and pray with me? There are some people, please bow your heads and close your eyes. There are some people in this room right now where you need to uh, a, a heal, healing in a relationship. And maybe you're here with that person, maybe you're not. It's okay. But if you would just be bold right now, could you, could you put your hand up? Heads bowed, eyes closed, put your hand up and, and you, that you, you would acknowledge, hey, I need healing in a relationship. Thank you. I see your hand. I see your hand. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hands going up everywhere. Praise God. God, you see these hands. You see these people. You know these situations better than they do. Holy Spirit, would you enter into these relationships right now in a fresh way? Make your presence felt. Make your presence known. God, would you give the people with raised hands specifically, would you build up strength in them? Would you build up hope in them? God, help us to have the courage to reach out to you as the miracle-working God so that we can receive the evidence you're so desperately trying to make known to us. And then, God, give us, give us the boldness to unleash our faith that you can heal these relationships. Maybe today... Maybe next week, maybe 20 years from now, like Jacob and Esau, but we know that you can heal these relationships. So God, help us to reach out to you, to receive that evidence. Give us the courage to unleash our faith and obey. Give us wisdom. Give us peace. God, help us to be the face of God in the situation and let you take care of the rest. In Jesus' name, amen.